everybody. This is Joel Junker, and welcome to another edition of the Cameron Brooks Podcast. Uh, the Cameron Brooks Podcast, our purpose is that we want to talk with successful uh, business leaders that have made the transition from the military into business. And in this episode, I talked to Ryan Nungesser, or I interview Ryan. Uh, Ryan served in the Marine Corps, former uh, infantry officer, company commander, a Vanderbilt University graduate, played uh, nose, uh, nose tackle or a defensive lineman for them, and now today is the production director of a, the Boston Scientific Spencer, Indiana uh, plant. Boston Scientific is an industry-leading medical device company. Today, Ryan leads a team of over 500 people uh, that make about 5.5 million uh, medical devices a year. Ryan shares some great insight about the importance of asking for help. You don't have to do things on your own. Um, about your development and being yourself and blooming where you're planted. Uh, he also talks about what he does on his off time to be sharp and to continue to be sharp when he's at work. Um, so enjoy this episode with Ryan. He's been extremely successful in seven years and throughout his life. Uh, has some great insight for all of us. Ryan, welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Yeah, great to uh, great to be on, Joel. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So why don't we you just give the the audience a little, a little background? Uh, you could take it either one of two directions. You can you know give the whole overview of your career. I know it's been seven years, so maybe that's not the best way to go. Or just share with what you're doing right now, and then through the podcast, we may walk up to how you got there. Yeah, absolutely. So currently, uh, I am the director of production uh, for our Boston Scientific Spencer facility. Uh, we support primarily our endoscopy and urology and pelvic health divisions out of uh, our plant in Spencer, Indiana, uh, which uh, comprises of about a thousand uh, employees. Uh, we do about 133 million in, in cost of goods sold, or as we reference it, uh, value of production. And that's supporting nearly uh, $600 million of revenue uh, for Boston Scientific on an annual basis. And within my role as director of production, I am responsible for all of the manufacturing activities to support uh, that, that revenue for Boston Scientific out of this facility. And it's been a, uh, a great experience. Uh, that The team that I uh, oversee here is uh, approximately 500 um, product builders or associates or employees on the uh, on our manufacturing floor that are building the product and then I have uh, a staff of approximately 27 uh, administrative personnel between supervisors production managers uh, operational excellence operations training uh, that also help me uh, manage that team so it's been uh, it's been a great ride with uh, Boston scientific and and really an exciting company to work for and I'm, I'm really uh, you know, happy to be doing what I'm doing. That's great. So I'm going to take the audience back to the first weekend that I met you and tell the story. It's going to lead to some questions. And you can, you, if you can correct me if I get it wrong or you can add in some numbers. So Ryan comes to the career conference in Charlotte. Wife is nine months and one week pregnant or something like that. Yeah. We There is a text message or an email early Monday morning right before interviews start. I have left the conference. I'm driving home. My wife is in labor. (laughs) 
wife has baby. Son's probably you're, I, seven years old now. That's how long yeah, ago yeah. it was. I mark my time with Boston Scientific by my daughter's birthday. That's great. I have a daughter who's seven, turned 17 on Tuesday, or Wednesday this week, and I started in um, the month that she was born as well. So I have the same mile marker there. But anyway, you come back to the conference on Tuesday, or yeah, Tuesday morning. Yep. And um, we don't cancel your Monday interviews. Instead, we move all your Monday interviews, spread them in where they fit on Tuesday, and you have a perfect conference of companies saying yes to you. And where I'm leading with this, other than I just think it's a pretty cool story, we still tell it today. You had, I remember you standing in the operations room during your interview with a, a sales company. And like, I thought this, you know, this guy played football at Vanderbilt. This is the type of person that sales companies want. He's got the presence, he's got the image, he's got the drive. Why did you choose to go manufacturing? You had all these things in front of you. And not that manufacturing is a step below or different. It just, it seems like there are so many misperceptions of manufacturing. And that's what I want to do with my line of questioning here is, why did you choose it? And let's blow some doors off of misperceptions of manufacturing. Yeah, so I, you know, simply stated, I really enjoy people leadership and team leadership. And it's not that there aren't elements of that in, in sales or uh, different industries that, that uh, you know, you guys are helping, uh, you know, JMOs get into. Um, but it was really flushing out. And I remember meeting Cameron Brooks, uh, you know, for the first time. And they talked about the sales and the manufacturing. And it really came back to that, that team leadership. And as I look back at my experience in the Marine Corps, uh, I was a platoon commander, an XO, a weapons platoon commander. Uh, I was uh, a company commander at a training unit. And, and fundamentally, when you, when you peel back uh, the layers of my experience and, and what I enjoyed about my experience in the military, it was all about people. And, and frankly, when I went on the on-site interviews and I was, uh, you know, seeing the differences between sales and marketing and some of the other opportunities that were afforded to me, I couldn't help but step into our manufacturing plant in Spencer, where I've actually been since I took my initial offer from uh, Boston Scientific, and just get the sense that uh, this is the best place where I'm going to have an opportunity to coach, mentor, and, and lead people. And frankly, it felt very similar to the, the platoon and the companies uh, that I had. And manufacturing is, is very dependent on, on the people and making sure that there are clear expectations and treating people right and doing the right thing. And that's where I felt like my strengths were. And I felt like I could offer more to Boston Scientific uh, by taking an opportunity where they were going to have me in charge of people than I did, uh, say, a sales job where I was going to be in my view, uh, more in an individual contributor type role out on my own, um, you know, building individual relationships. Um, that really, for me, was the, uh, the differentiator, and it just felt right uh, when I was doing the on-site interviews. When you, you mentioned that you talked about your military career, how you, you moved up in a great transition using your leadership in the Marine Corps, sometimes I hear people tell me that are really strong leaders, they're just a very good fit for op manufacturing operations role. Hey, you know, Joel, I've already done that. I've already done that. I want to do something different. Yet, yeah. Uh, and I've never been in a in a medical device manufacturing facility. I know two two questions, but the first question I want you to take away from me answer is, 
what what is manufacturing really like? I feel like it gets oversimplified. Hey, I'm just showing up, I'm leading my team, and making sure that they, they need to do what they, they're doing. But I know it's much more than that. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's funny, and I, I'll try not to be the uh, the Boston Scientific uh, salesman here, ironically. But the reality of it is, uh, when you look at our just our Spencer manufacturing plant for Boston Scientific, uh, we build about five and a half million devices a year. And when you break that down to month, to day, to hour, we're impacting nearly two million patients a year uh, through the products that, that we build uh, on the manufacturing floor. And, and uh, you know, it's, sometimes it's easy to get and simplify manufacturing to building widgets. Um, but the reality is uh, we're not. We're building devices that, that help save people's lives uh, that make the, the quality of their lives better. In fact, it's not uncommon just to be walking around town with a Boston Scientific shirt on and have people come up and thank you. And it's really the brick and mortar, and I know the sales guys are out there selling it, but at the end of the day, we like to think of it as like we're the ones that are really keeping the lights on. They don't have the product. They don't have anything to sell. And we do the development here. Uh, we get involved in new product launches. We get involved in marketing to do manufacturing well. You have to touch every single element of the business, sales, marketing. We have doctors that come visit our manufacturing plants and we collaborate with them on how could we make this device better for you to use or to make it easier on the patients that you're using them on. And so I think many people think manufacturing, to your point, is just showing up and making sure that you build however many widgets you have to build in the day, but it's more than that because it's a great place to learn about the entire business. Uh, because it's so interconnected across many, many different functions. And what one of the things that's always intrigued me about manufacturing, why I think it's so challenging, especially in a medical environment or even in a, a uh, consumer packaged goods, food and beverage, is this FDA requirements, OSHA requirements that you have, the compliance piece too. What when you were a production team leader or your production team leaders now that you have, what is their scorecard? Describe what a scorecard is, a dashboard is. I'm assuming they have it, and what are those metrics that they're trying to hit? Sure. So uh, simply stated, we call it our core five metric for our production teams, and um, they are centered around the following. Uh, we have a safety and quality metric. So safety is uh, related to OSHA-related uh, metrics. We call them our uh, TRIR metrics, uh, recordable incident rate, and uh, our LWR metric, which is our lost work restricted time, which means you're measuring the severity of the incidents and obviously trying to keep that rate low. Uh, you're also measuring um, the duration in which people are impacted by those incidents. That's the lost work restricted time, and those are all uh, compliance related to OSHA um, standards. From a quality perspective, uh, there's a whole host, particularly in the medical device industry. We like to simplify that for our production team in something we call our quality incidents, or essentially how many errors escape from your uh, production area that are caught at downstream operations, whether that's via the customer, via our distribution centers, and that quality metric is really helping us identify where we have gaps in our manufacturing process. And that helps us do problem solving and identify how we can make our process more robust. 
so that those defects aren't being caught by people uh, outside of our manufacturing facility. And as you can imagine, there's a whole host of other compliance-related issues that, that result in um, other people than ourselves finding our um, uh, manufacturing deficiencies, so there's a, a strong focus on that. We measure uh, a lot of our, well, most of our cost metrics at the production unit level, um, uh, namely speaking our efficiency, which is tied to how effectively we're using our people in the manufacturing of the product. Uh, we also measure uh, scrap, which is basically uh, how many defects we're having to throw away on the line, because there's obviously a, a cost associated with that as well. Um, the final one that we track is our uh, cycle time or or lead time and how quickly we are moving product from uh, identification that a customer needs our product uh, and getting that signal from our planning team and moving that through production to the point that it gets to our distribution center. So it really touches a whole host of different uh, industry-related uh Agencies, FDA from a quality perspective, OSHA to your point on a safety perspective, as well as internal uh, continuous improvement activity focused on cost and, and lead time. So now digging into your career, how did your, again, going to perceptions, Marine Corps, mm -hmm. uh, you guys are formal, this is general, you know, generalizations, formal, um, stiff, uh, not as approachable. I mean, I'm bringing up all the negatives. Sure. How how did you transition from this environment to an environment where what I perceive is you've got people that are probably pretty pretty know what they're doing for the most part in a in a medical device manufacturing environment. You gotta be approachable. Anybody's gotta be able to raise their hand and say, listen, stop, this is outside the norm. I want you to tell you what's going on, versus this command and control. How did you did you have to adapt your leadership style when you started? And if so, how? Yeah, I think situational leadership is uh, extremely important. And I think it's just really understanding the best way to connect fundamentally to your customer, the people. Um, Red, and I think anybody who's in, in the uh, service understands the difference between your interactions with your platoon and, and you know, potentially your commanding officer or general officer. Uh, and, it's, and it's being able to adapt your style to be able to ensure that the team that's working for you clearly understands your expectations uh, while at the same time uh, being approachable. And, that the, and then, you know, when you're managing up, obviously using elements of, you know, my service experience in the Marine Corps with regards to the formality, uh, you know, and, and, and providing that clear, polished uh, communication that, uh, you know, my experience in the service uh, provided me uh, when you're managing up. So situational leadership and, and understanding how to adapt to your customer, whether that's the team that's working for you or while you're managing up uh, and, and being flexible and understanding that there isn't always a, uh, you know, one approach, uh, I think is a, a key element of being successful. One of the things that we've seen in our years of um, working with people like you, Ryan, obviously you've been extraordinarily successful and is that a lot of people run get to about the year mark and just I'd say it's just about everybody has some obstacle that they've got to get through. Whether it be did I make the right choice to get out, did I make the right choice of the career to go into? Um, hey, the the honeymoon phase is it's caused by the honeymoon phase is now over. 
did you face that obstacle yourself? Like, whoa, what just happened in, in that first year, 18 months? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, when I would tell you, I think I may have even reached out to you, Joel. You I, did, but I, I didn't really want to tell the story. I didn't want to tell the story from my perspective. I wanted you to tell tell it. Yeah, I I I probably around whew, the year mark. I really struggled uh, at times with the differences in culture between uh, the Marine Corps, in particular, and uh, the uh, private sector, right, in, in Boston Scientific, and I and I struggled with it from the perspective of. Uh, not necessarily being the one guy that was in control of everything, right? So for projects that I wanted to get done, it wasn't just me saying, hey, I want this project done and, you know, my Marines would go and do it. In our structure and manufacturing, right, there are quality hurdles that you need to work through. There, there are engineering resources that didn't necessarily uh, report to me that I had to influence cross-functionally and, and the speed at which I felt like I could influence and the speed, you know, that I expected myself to be influenced just wasn't there like it was uh, in the Marine Corps. And I think really the key element uh, of working through that hurdle was asking for help. And I think one of the struggles that, uh, you know, many people have, and, and we've certainly recruited our fair share of uh, JMOs uh, in Boston Scientific after me and even in our facility, is that everyone thinks they have to make it on their own, right? That you're the big experienced military guy, everyone's looking at you and you're on this island and everyone's expecting you to do it by yourself. And I think that's where people end up failing is thinking they have to push through those hurdles on their own. And I think, you know, through reaching out to you, really having a candid conversation with my boss, my peers, I started and soon realized that, hey, other people are having these same challenges. Uh, and I was able to lean on my peers, my boss, and, and mentors from, uh, you know, my past uh, to give me advice or provide, you know, real-world experiences of how they manage through that. So I, I think, you know, the big takeaway for me was, you know, when you struggle, you don't have to do it on your own. Uh, never be afraid to ask for help. Um, losing people is costly, and, you know, and I think, that's what I try to make clear to my team is, you know, stick your hand in the air and let someone, eat, eat, you know, let someone know you have a problem because I'd rather work through that with you than you get frustrated and, and ultimately leave. And I think talking about it, communicating it, and again, uh, sticking my hand in the air and say, I'm struggling with this. Does anyone have any advice or help? Uh, really help me work through it. You know, it's, um, it, that's, a, I mean, that's exactly why we're doing this podcast is to draw out that lesson that we can share with people because I, my 17 years of watching people manage their careers, I would say uh, one of the, it's got to be top five mistakes that people make is they run into an obstacle, they run into a problem, they feel, they think that, well, I was in the military, if I brought a problem to my boss of what you were just describing, they would look at me and tell me, go away, do your job. And I was looked at as weak. In the business, it's different. You, 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 people want to develop and retain really good people. And so what ends up happening is that I see some people turning and changing their career trajectory, which actually was in a very good trajectory, by making a decision without getting all of the information first from bosses, peers, 
third party. And so what they end up doing is they make this decision on a very narrow piece of information where they don't have their perception quite lined up properly. Yeah, and ab ab absolutely. I mean, I, I completely concur. Ran into the same ran into the same circumstances. You just can't don't don't rush conclusion. You know, we all want to, from a military perspective, think we're those A personalities. In your point, asking for help. Uh, to your point, at times is is perceived as being weak, and I, I just see it as completely the the exact opposite. I think asking for help can be a a shine a, a sign of strength, a sign that you don't know everything, right? I didn't come out of the military into manufacturing, uh, you know, and and know necessarily what lean was or how to make these improvements or the best way to work in a cross-functional matrixed uh, organization. Um, you know, I think there's there's a sign of maturity there and being able to ask for help and making it clear that you don't necessarily know everything. And I think people appreciate that. And again, even from a situational leadership perspective with the perception that as a Marine, hard to approach or whatnot, I, I, you know, asking for help and, and talking to your peers and bosses, I think in, in some ways help uh, you know, mitigate that that perception, or at least uh, you know, make it clear that people, you know, you're not necessarily that big, tough, rough and tumble um, guy that everyone's afraid of. You know, right, right. Um, although I think we should tell our listeners that you did play nose guard for Vanderbilt, right? <laughs> yes, about uh, 60 pounds ago, I did. Not uh, not six more. And and how and how good were you guys back then? Terrible. Uh, you know, uh, Vanderbilt, my experience in Vanderbilt football is a, an entirely different discussion on overcoming uh, obstacles and learning from uh, constant uh, constant challenges. We, we'll have to do another podcast some other time to talk about uh, Vanderbilt, uh, Vanderbilt football and lessons learned. Let's talk a little bit about your, um, you got a lot of junior leaders that are in your line of sight, if you will, in the role that you're in. What, outside of this advice that you've just given about ask for help, what do you, what advice do you give your junior leaders in developing them? Yeah, so I have found it extremely helpful, uh, whether it's with my managers now or when I was a manager with my supervisors, uh, making sure that there are very clear expectations on what success looks like. Um, and I end up setting one-on-ones with all of our new supervisors, and I and I maintain uh, those relationships uh, throughout their time, either working for me or with Boston Scientific. Um, and and through those one-on-ones, uh, you know, I give them my leadership principles and, and guiding principles, and um, you know, I, I the best advice that I honestly give them. Uh, similar to what I was saying before, don't assume you know what you don't know. Uh, make sure you're asking for help. If something isn't clear, make sure that you ask for clarity. Um, and I and I tell people they need to bring themselves to work. Uh, you know, we actively go out looking for diversity on our team and different thoughts. And if you're not bringing who you are. Uh, to work every single day, then we're not benefiting it as an organization from your experiences, from your background, um, you know, from your, from your leadership style and your personality. So uh, be yourself. Uh, don't be afraid, uh, you know, to ask for help and make sure that you know what success looks like 
are really the three kind of key takeaways that I make sure all of our junior leaders and frankly all leaders in my organization uh, you know are, are clear on from the moment they walk in the door you you know seven years you've moved from production supervisor to a director of manufacturing what would you say the keys to success were for you like what did you do that uh, allowed you to demonstrate that you had the potential for this, that you had the track record um, to, 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 I'm not asking you to, to be, to toot your horn or anything like that, but to share to other people, listen, you want to be successful. These are the things I had to do along the way to demonstrate my potential in, in my track record. Yeah, I got a, I got a great piece of advice uh, from my commanding officer um, before I left the Marine Corps and it, and it kind of summed it up in, uh, grow where you're planted and you know there was a lot of discussion at first and I know people get out at varying degrees of their career in the military captain they've been company commanders and uh, leading gigantic organizations with all kinds of responsibilities and and many people I think often see that transitional experience uh, back into the private sector in some cases a step back particularly as a supervisor you know, in, in my world, I had left the Marine Corps as a, a company commander and, and was stepping back into a role that I saw as a uh, platoon commander. But, but you know, it was really important that I just did what I could do very well. And I didn't focus on why am I not, you know, the, the production unit manager. I wonder how long it's going to take me to get to the director of production role. I, I focused on what I could focus on and, and, and what I could control. Uh, you know, as much as I possibly could, um, and you know, I I grew where I was planted, and I, I let it go that I wasn't uh, you know leading the, the biggest organization in the building, and uh, you know, I made sure to do all of the things that made me successful as a platoon commander. And when I became manager, I did all the little things uh, that it you know took for me to be a successful company commander. And I I focused on the moment, and I and I didn't you know worry too much about uh, how long it was going to take me to become the next director of, of manufacturing or director of production or, or vice president. Uh, I focused on the here and the now, and I did it as well as I could. And I think uh, through that, that focus, um, you know, it, it, it put me in a position where, you know, people obviously saw that I had potential, and I was fortunate enough to, to, to be promoted into, uh, you know, positions of growing responsibility. But, I, you know, it's you see a lot of people, you know, how long should it take me before I'm a, before I'm a, you know, manager or director or whatnot. And, you know, my only advice to them is, you know, focus on what you can control and what you can do now. And, and uh, that's, I think, a, a bigger key to success than thinking about where you should be five years from now. Yeah, it's so interesting. I talked to, to a young man last week that's been in, um, after his training and everything, has really been in his current role six months. And he's like, Joel, I'm just really curious, you know, what's my three and five year plan? They're not really talking to me about this yet. And, um, and I said to him, um, and I do think this is the root of why some people like make some poor decisions. Like I look at it from the, your organization's perspective. They're not thinking about a three or five year plan for you until you know what you can do in year one for, for sure. I said, oh, you got to fo focus on your year one goals. Yep. Um, focus on your metrics and your objectives and, and and on that one thing, and just do whatever you can to meet and exceed those, 
and add value wherever you can. And I said then the other piece is this might be a time where you're, you know, you're not ramping up for deployment, you're not going to be gone for six months at a time, where now you can focus on some other things in your life that you haven't focused on before, like friendships and hobbies and relationships or whatever they, books, whatever they may be. And, um, but you're, you're so, you're, you're very wise counsel on that. Focus on the here and now. Be present. Don't be looking three, five years in front of you yet. That'll come, but you've got to establish that track record of success before, and six months is not a track record. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. In, in, the, in the private sector, execution, as it is in, in the military as well, is, is 90% of, uh, of the battle. And I don't forget, uh, at the Cameron Brooks conference, um, you know, the advice that we received about not getting jittery and, and, you know, make sure you deliver on the commitments you make, uh, and in the here and now and the opportunities eventually will come. And, and that has been a very, very true, uh, you know, wise piece of advice that I remember even, you know, at the, at the career conference and, and it's, it's been helpful for me. Good. Very good. I'm glad you were paying attention on Sunday night. Most people are, uh, are eyes are glazed over and they're ready to get ready to start interviewing. Um, I got just a couple more questions, sure. and uh, uh, we're going to definitely have to have you back on in about six months or so because I think you have a lot more to offer. But wanting to keep the podcast to about uh, 30, 30 minutes or so. Two other questions, or the three actually. What what did you do? Out. I think so much. Where the question is coming from, so many people depend on their bosses, their management to develop them. What did you do to develop yourself outside of what you were directed to do? I read a lot. Um, and I, you know, especially as an infantry guy who, who struggled outside of knowing that they wanted to lead people, um, c catching up on what manufacturing in the industry is, I, you know, was a huge part. And you kind of talked about the downtime, right? If the people leadership right. and stuff came easy to me year one, then my perspective on it is I need to know as much or more about manufacturing than all of my peers if I want to be successful. So uh, I spent uh, a lot of time uh, online in literature about uh, manufacturing, and I started with the basics and kind of building on the reading list that we started with Cameron Brooks on, on Lean, and uh, just some of the basic blocking and tackling fundamentally uh, fundamentals of, of manufacturing, um, you know. And then I started to get more into industry-related topics. What are different companies doing? What is the industry trends looking like? And and as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, uh, when we have doctors and and our uh, marketing folks and sales folks here, it was very helpful and easy then to talk with them and, and collaborate with them and on ideas and create projects for myself or initiatives that I think put me in a position upon execution of those that that helped people understand that I wasn't simply looking at the myopic view of manufacturing, but I was trying to understand the entire business. And, and for someone having come out of the, the military, I think there's a, a big need to uh, spend time on that industry and what you're doing. And, and for me, literature was extremely helpful for that. I've always been uh, a reader. That's good. So speaking of reading, outside of what the Cameron Brooks books are and things like that, what's the best book that you've read for self-development? Well, I, I, I'm going to have to point to, I'm still going to have to point back to uh, uh, Cameron Brooks. I really like the uh, 
five dysfunctions of a team. Mm. Um, I, from a manufacturing perspective, anything uh, on the Toyota production system has been extremely helpful. Um, there's a lot of literature um, out of Utah State University for uh, Shingo, who was right. a, a mentor and a peer for uh, Taiichi Ono and the Toyota production system, focused more on the cultural elements of lean, not just the, the manufacturing elements of lean that I think have been, uh, you know, particularly helpful for me. So any, any of those topics, uh, I think, have, have been a big part of my learning as, a, as an individual. Um, there's also just a ton of stuff from a medical device perspective. I believe the, the, the literature is called, now called MedTech. It used to be known as the Silver Sheet. Um, it is an online um, resource that provides kind of weekly industry trends and topics, whether it's on the businesses in the industry or on the FDA, um, that are great resources in terms of learning more about medical device, uh, the FDA, kind of the trends and where it's going. So those are a couple of examples of um, topics and, and um periodicals that I stay in frequent touch with. Now, you, at one time, you guys were trying to earn the Shingo Prize. Is that right, at Spencer? Yes, we uh, we are still on that journey. Uh, we've actually okay. had um, members of the Boston Scientific uh, Manufacturing Network receive the prize, and it's great to do benchmarking and go see the other sites and what they're doing. But, the uh, yeah, the Shingo Prize, uh, it's, it's interesting. A lot of people get focused on the the tools associated with Lean, but the Shingo Prize is really about your team and how engaged they are in developing and driving your Lean culture as a site. So it's a definitely a different take, and making that cultural step change uh, has been uh, an interesting challenge for sure. So last question is actually somewhat part of work, um, but more on the, the uh, personal development side piece. So much of the military consumes everything that you do. Your life is around all that. I think it's hard for some people to break out when they get into business of, okay, what do I do with my white space that's out there? I know you have a family and children, and so that consumes a lot of that. I've got my, I do that as well. But what do you do for yourself to, to keep life interesting, whether that be, I know you've got a team guy on your team, Mike, that I comes to the conferences as a Cameron Brooks alum, he likes to hit the heavy bag, you know, <laughs> during the week yeah. several yeah. times. What do you do just to, you got to stay sharp physically, mentally, uh, because you can't be working family all the time, but though I'm sure it consumes about 90% of your time. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say from a hobby perspective and the stuff that I do to just break away mentally from work outside of obviously uh, spending time with the family, I think... I think exercise, you know, frankly, and this is going to sound very Marine Corps-ish, is, is a really important part of transitioning from the, uh, the military to the, uh, to the private sector. And this is going to sound funny, but in the military, you're used to having kind of that physical wellness aspect just built into your day. And that is not like that at all in the, uh, in the, in the private sector. So I think just Dealing with the stress through exercise, whether you're a CrossFitter, you like to run, uh, I think it's very helpful for me. I still get up before work every single day and go to the gym, um, and it helps kind of keep me balanced. 
Um, having lived in the Midwest now, I've definitely picked up uh, uh, fishing, fly fishing. Uh, we go up to Michigan a couple times a year. Uh, we got a nice uh, lake right outside of uh, Bloomington where we spend a lot of time swimming and fishing. So definitely the hobbies, but you know, and I've always kind of been physical fitness uh, driven, just having played college football, but. That, that physical health element of moving from the military to the private sector, I think, is really important just to stay sharp and, and help relieve stress. Uh, great. Ryan, thanks thanks a lot again for taking taking the time out uh, today. I know you're really busy being running the, the production operation. They're really, really good insights, um, and uh, I, I love them. Uh, stuff that I can take and that I know that our uh, that anybody listening to this trying to manage their career has some great nuggets of information there. And and uh, whatever we can do to help you in the future, too, let us know, okay? Yeah, we'll absolutely do that. And uh, we're going to have you back on the sh uh, at some point in time, maybe in six, seven months or something like that, because I think there's a whole lot of other ground that we can cover here. That'd be great. And uh, Ryan, take care. Last question, what's Vanderbilt's record going to be since football kicks off this Thursday night? Well, right now we're undefeated. Every year, Vandy yes. starts undefeated. Um, I, we, we got a uh, we got an interesting one. This is uh, Derek Mason's third year as our uh, head coach, so we're we've got aspirations to get back to a bowl. And I think we got to start one and zero against South Carolina Thursday night. So I'll be uh, I'll be up late. I'm, I may not get the gym in on Friday morning though. Uh, but Vanderbilt football always takes priority. Sounds good, Ryan. You take care. Thanks for being on the show. No problem, Joel. Have a good one.